This morning we're going to continue the, the series further up and further in, which we started last week. But before we go any further, personally I want to get to a place where I'm ready to hear from the Lord. <laughs> and I'd like, I'd like to invite you in as well. So um, in Sunday school class, I, I had the privilege of joining the elective Sunday school class this morning. We were having a conversation about how do we hear God's voice. And we were looking at Psalm 28. Where David says in verse 1, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So what David's saying here, if we remove some of the poetic language translated by the ESV, what David's saying here is God I have to have you speak to me. If you're not speaking to me, I might as well not even be alive. There's no point in living unless God is speaking. So let's get to a place place of agreement this morning with, with the word of God and just agree through the spirit and through his word that really life has no meaning apart from God speaking. Father, God, there truly is no hope outside of you speaking. You spoke creation into existence. You've given us the gift of your written word, spoken through the prophets and apostles by your spirit. And Jesus is called the word, the word of God. Without your word, Lord, without you speaking, there, there is no hope for us. God, when I seek to, you know, as a pastor, when I'm putting a sermon together, a sermon series, at the end of the day, what, what I most hope for, God, is just that we hear your voice as your people, that we would hear and obey. At the end of your incredible sermon, on the Sermon on the Mount, You said, whoever hears my word and obeys is like a man who builds his house on a firm foundation. Storms of life rage against it and the house will stand. But whoever hears these words and doesn't do what they say is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And storms come and the house is destroyed. God, we desire as your children your voice. We seek your voice this morning. We long for it. We agree with your word that if you are silent, then we might as well be down in the grave. But if you are speaking, God, if you are speaking to us in relationship with us, then there is life and joy and abundance. And we believe that this is true. We believe that you're speaking. That's why we're here today. We're not here for empty sacrifices or just trappings of religion. We're here because we desire to hear from God Almighty. God, stir within us a hunger for your word this morning. Stir within us a longing to hear from you this morning. And help us have ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying and what you're doing in our midst. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Last week we began the new sermon series, Further Up and Further In, which comes from The Last Battle, which is written by C.S. Lewis. It's the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And Aslan, who's the Jesus figure in the book, cries out to his children, come further up and further in. I was reading that this summer. Um, I'm I'm currently in my fourth year of seminary, and so I do a lot of academic reading throughout the year, but I love reading, and so during the summers or during breaks, I tend to just read things that are fun or things that are enjoyable because I just need that refreshment in my spirit. And so this summer, I revisited the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time since I was a kid, and when I got to that point in the book... And I was reading, and Aslan was calling to the children, come further up and further in. I started weeping while I was lying in bed, just crying, hearing that call from God to me personally saying, come further up, further in. This isn't just a story. This is my relationship with you. This is what I long for you. Jesus saying to his children, come further up. Further in, come experience me, know me, know my word, know what it's like to be touched by me, know what it's like to walk with me, know what it's like to obey me, know what it's like to hear my voice, come further up, further in. But it's not just a cry to one person, because in the story, and this is true to our story too, Aslan is crying to this whole collection of people, to all of them, and they're all running together through Narnia, through the kingdom, they're all running together and he's saying to all of them, all of you come further up. All of you come further in. And just like the Spirit of God says to me individually, come further up, further in, and the Spirit of God says to you individually, come further up, further in, he says to us together, people of God, come further up and further in. Do not be content with yesterday's manna. Don't just be content with what you knew of Jesus yesterday. Come further up and further in. Chase me. Run after me. Know me. Hear me. Touch me. Experience me. Even to the ones who doubt, Jesus says, touch me. Even to the ones who question, Jesus says, come further up and further in. His invitation is so gracious. I hope it sweeps you away in wonder. I hope that in your heart you can hear God Almighty, Yahweh, I am, speak to you as his child and say, come further up and further in with me. The title of the first sermon last week in this series was Life with God. And of all the sermons I've given in my short tenure at Parker Ford, including sermons I had given over the years in the past, I got the most response from, from this past week's sermon. Um, I received calls, texts, emails, um, and personal conversations where, where people wanted to talk about it. And my wife, who's always a good barometer of how it went, because <laughs> she knows me better than anyone else <laughs> when, when it comes to a sermon or whatever, she was like, that was really good. It was a lot. It was a lot. So what I want to do this morning is I want to start by doing a little bit more review than I would typically do. If you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and listen um, online through our website or through the podcast. Listen to last week's sermon. But it was titled Life with God. This, this morning we're going to do Life with God with others. But we're going to start with review. So we looked at four postures that are common 
for people in the way that we relate to God. And this comes from a book called With, titled With, by a writer, theologian, pastor named Sky Jatani. And he offers five different postures. Um, The fifth one is life with God, but the first four are ways that people commonly relate to God. And each of these four postures seek to exert control over the unpredictability of life, namely the universal human experience of fear and suffering. The first posture is life under God. The second is life over God. The third is life from God. And the fourth is life for God. Now, all of these are deficient and aren't the full picture of how the people of God are called to walk with God. So under the first posture, life under God, this is a posture towards God that's based in superstition. It sees God through the lens of cause and effect. I obey his commands and he blesses my life. So this is essentially what a rain dance is, right? You go out, it's dry, you need rain, and so you do the two steps this way and the three this way, and the heavens open, and it rains. Um, the, the Israelites were continually tempted to interact with God in this way. So the, the Philistines, uh, it says in 1 Samuel at the beginning of the book, the Philistines were invading the land, and the Israelite army gathered, and they gathered across from the Philistine army, and they were afraid of this vast horde of enemy warriors, and so they were like, let's get the Ark of, Co- of the Covenant in our midst, because if we have the Ark, we're guaranteed victory. So they go and get the Ark, and they bring it into their midst, and then promptly they get destroyed uh, in, in the battle. There was no listening to God. There was no seeking God's voice. It was just superstitious interaction with God, cause and effect mentality. And we're still tempted by this mentality in today's world um, with charms, with um, all, all sorts of things, or just interacting with God in a cause and effect way. If I obey your voice, then you need to give me what I expect on the other end. But we know that terrible things happen to good people and wonderful things happen to bad people. (laughs) And this has been the history of the world, has it not? It's essentially a cause and effect relationship with God based in superstition. The life over God posture is the basis of deism, humanism, atheism, a lot of the isms. And it desires to seek or control over God by following rules and principles. And this happened um, primarily post-enlightenment. So when the modern concept of science developed, man began to view the world through a very different lens than he had before the Enlightenment. Before the Enlightenment, ancient man saw the world and he saw gods everywhere, right? He looked up at the sun and saw a god of the sun. He looked at the moon and saw a god of the moon. He saw the divine in the trees and in nature and in everything. And then modern man, after science, looked up and Saul, rather than a god, saw a giant burning gas of fusion, right? And a mathematical principle that, that undergirds everything. And, and people have longed to find out, you know, the, the principles that lie underneath the universe. So in modern man's view, not everything is supernatural. There's a naturalistic explanation for everything. And this is a deistic relationship with God, where God, maybe there's a God, maybe he created the earth, But it's like a watch, and he's like a watchmaker, and he set the universe in motion, and then he stepped back, and he's just letting it tick itself, 
down. And many of the, actually probably the majority of the American founding fathers were actually deistic in their relationship with God and were not Christian in the sense of longing for a deep abiding relationship with him. The worldview was that God created everything and then he stepped back and he's hands off. So you can't expect miracles. There are no such thing as angels or spirits or Satan or the demonic. None of that exists because that's all supernatural. There's a a natural explanation for everything. Now, we're tempted by this, maybe not by believing there's a natural explanation for everything, but believing that there are principles that we can follow that, that guarantee a certain outcome. And to a certain extent, that might be true, because I don't have to know the Lord to have a relationship with my wife that follows principles that causes us to have a somewhat healthy relationship, right? So there, there are non-believers who have wonderful marriages, because they listen to one another, they sacrifice for one another, they follow God's principles for marriage, whether or not they know they're following it. And we know that there are Christian marriages that don't follow those principles that end up in terrible shipwreck situations. So there, there is an element of truth in that God has certain principles, but we are not created to interact with God principally through principles, or primarily through principles. We are, if, if, if a relationship with someone else is just based on following principles— That's not much of a relationship. Sometimes the rules have to be broken. Or sometimes, like think about David when he goes in to the high priests, into the, the priestly area of the tabernacle and he eats the showbread. You remember that story? He's completely breaking the principles. He's breaking God's law. He's breaking what God had said. And yet Jesus then talks about that and, and approves of it. Jesus looks back on that story and brings it up and approves of it. Our relationship with God is not based in principles. And so if we just have a principled life, we might get certain outcomes that are okay, but it will be devoid of deep relationship. The life from God posture is, is based in consumerism, and this is the one our culture struggles with the most. It's a desire for God's blessing, but not really God himself. God becomes the divine vending machine. Where, you know, you go through drive through God, McDonald's, and you say, I'll take the family and the blessings and the job and the whatever, and I'll leave the judgment and I'll leave, I'll leave the difficult things. I'll leave the cross at McDonald's, but I'll take the rest. And this is just inundated our culture, saturated from top to bottom. We're talked about and thought about and raised as consumers. And so we are so tempted to interact with God this way. And then the life for God. And this is the one that looks good on the surface. um, But the deeper we look, we see that there's actually deficiencies here. Um, And in the life for God posture, it's impact over relationship. Life's worth is determined by the amount that's accomplished for God. This is one that tempts me the most. Because I want to make an impact for God. I want to be valuable to him. I think of scriptures that, you know, call us to action and call us to mission And yet, it's so easy to think that that, the mission, the impact that we make is what God actually desires, 
versus the relationship. That's such a slippery slope. It, it, and, and I've struggled with it and wrestled with it. There's a young man at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, one of our sister churches in Lebanon. And this young man um, is about my age, a couple years younger than me. And he's uh, mentally handicapped and probably has the, the persona- like the maturity of about a 10 or less, 10 years old. And this young man, um, he greets every person that ever walks through the door with a giant hug. Just a massive hug. Every single week he stands at the door, basically his whole life, and he waits. And everyone who comes in, I remember the very first time I ever visited Cornerstone, there was this young man draped around me, two, two steps in the door, and, and I didn't know him from, you know, Adam. And, and so it was an odd thing. And yet when I came to know him and build a relationship with him, it was so, so incredibly valuable and beautiful. All right. So think of this young man. He, the impact that he can have in the world is basically limited to hugs. That's, that's, the, that's his capacity for impact. That's the mission that he can accomplish. Now, I have some friends who are unbelievably talented and gifted in almost anything that they put their hands to and have built organizations and churches and planted churches around the world and done incredible things for God. But I ask you this morning, who does God love more? The young man who stands at the door and gives hugs, and that is his mission, and that is his impact. Or the person who travels around the world planting churches, who does God think is more valuable? Neither. Neither. They're both his children. Saved by grace. Adopted by Christ. Named by him. And yet it is so tempting for us to look at the one and say that's worth more than the other. Not in God's economy. Not according to the spirit of God. Because these powerful men and women that I know personally that have made incredible impact on the kingdom. I know, I know that I know that I know and I've wrestled with this. God loves this young man every bit as much as he loves that. God might call you to make a huge footprint on earth and be a Martin Luther. Awesome. That's not how you're valued though. God might call you to raise children. And that's your primary mission. Awesome. That also is not how you're valued. God values you by his son. That is how God values you. When he looks at you, he sees his son. When he looks at the young man at Cornerstone who gives out hugs, whether or not the people want it, who are walking through the door, he sees his son. We're so tempted to think that God wants us because of what we can do for him. God does not want you for what you can do for him. In fact, what you can do for him is pretty pathetic. What I can do for him is pretty pathetic. God wants me and he wants you 
Because he chose you. You ever notice how God, his name, when he reveals it to Moses, is not, I do what I do? Moses says, I need to know your name. Moses, I I do what I do. So you do. God says, I am who I am. Now, Moses still has things to do. And God certainly does things, all sorts of things. But his doing is based in his being, not the other way around. And our value is based in our being and his being, not in our doing because of his doing. He did because he is. We are because he did because he is. I'll let you work that out. Now, one of the things that Satan does is he takes something good and he twists it. Satan is completely unoriginal. Go ahead and say that. Satan is unoriginal. He's a plagiarizer. Say it. He's a plagiarizer. That's all he can do. Satan plagiarizes God's good work. So he takes that which is good that God creates, and he plagiarizes it and twists it and makes it something bad. Love twisted becomes lust. Enjoyment becomes objectification. Contentment becomes jealousy. Generosity becomes control. Rest becomes slothfulness. Authority becomes authoritarian. And so on and so forth. Down the line. Now, here's the crazy part. In my soul, the same part of me that loves because I'm a creation of God, made in his image, is the part in me that also struggles with lust. Now, what... (laughs) What we are often tempted to do is to completely shut down whatever that part is that we're wrestling with. But the problem with that is if we shut down that thing within us, we also shut down the part that's meant to be redeemed, created in the image of God. Now, God, the, the word tells us that God loves with erotic love. Eros, that's the Greek word. And erotic love, don't hear lust. When you look up at this, anybody ever seen a, a rainbow that took your breath away? Has anyone ever been on a mountaintop and your breath was taken away? That was erotic love. When your breath is taken away by beauty, that is erotic love. Don't shut that part of you down. You're meant to walk in it by the blood of Christ. I'm getting off on a rabbit trail. Satan takes good things and he twists them. So in every sin, in every struggle, we can actually, if we trace it back, see something good. So if you're a person who struggles with control, I would challenge you by saying that God designed you to be generous. If you're a person who struggles with authoritarian leadership, I would challenge you that God created you to know what it's like to be a leader who has true authority. And in God's kingdom, authority means you're sacrificial and you lay down your life. So, one of the responses I got immediately after last week's sermon, and it it shaped the rest of the week this week for me, and so I'm really glad, Nancy came up and was like, it's really interesting because it seems like in each of the four postures there's actually something good that's been twisted. And I agree. In the life of 
under God, over God, from God, for God, there's actually something that's good that's been twisted. So it's, Satan has taken covenantal relationship and twisted it and made it into contracts. So in the life under God posture, the cause and effect mentality is superstition. Over God is principles without heart from God. It's the, the question to God, have you delivered the goods? It's entitlement. And for God, it's mission above all else. Impact over relationship. I'll let you take a picture and then I'll move on. So we can see actually the goodness of God in each of these postures. So think about this. Life under God. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. We are to live life under God. To, a, to an extent, to a, to, in a certain way, we are to absolutely humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do you know what the next phrase is? And then at the proper time, he will lift you up. But yes, we are to humble ourselves under God. And then we see in Deuteronomy, and this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Now this is the commandment that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may fear the Lord your God. We are to fear God. Last week, I said something I shouldn't have said. Um, I said we weren't meant to understand God. That's, that's not true, and I didn't mean to phrase it that way. I meant to say God is not something to be figured out. God is to be understood. So if you take that word apart, you have two words, stand under. We are to stand under God. And I am to stand under my wife. And she is to stand under me. That is what it means to understand. Come under them and look at their perspective. Receive their perspective. We are to understand God. Um, so the life under God, there's actually goodness in this. We are to be humble with God and fear him. Life over God, we see, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. This is the posture that's about principles. So to an extent, we are to understand the earth. Like, to the best that we can, we are to seek knowledge and wisdom and and how things work and why they work the way they work. Those aren't bad questions. And there is no, friends, there is no war between faith and science. There's no such thing as a war between faith and science. God created it all. And we see, you know, in Proverbs, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, you will understand and find the knowledge of God. So seek wisdom, seek knowledge. The life from God, which is consumerism, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What does Jesus say? Every time you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. Here's my body broken for you. Here's my blood poured out for you. Take it and eat and drink. You are to be a consumer. You are absolutely designed by God to be a consumer. A consumer of Christ. And a consumer of his word. Which is different than consuming King of Prussia Mall. It's very different. In Ezekiel, we see this interesting imagery. And he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll. So I opened my mouth and he gave me this scroll to eat. And then the life for God posture, clearly we are to do things for God and with God. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So there's, I agree with Nancy, in each of the postures, there's something good. But you can't just live under the perspective of life under God. And you can't just live with the perspective of life over God. It's an incomplete picture. 
And furthermore, taken to its extreme on its own, it's twisted and it becomes a contractual way of relating to God rather than a covenantal way of walking with God. And so we see that life, we are to fear the Lord for it's the beginning of wisdom and true worship marked by humility. And we are We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and are called to live with both authority and dominion. Not authoritarian and not domination, but yes, authority and yes, dominion. Life from God. We are to be obsessed with Christ. Have you ever invited yourself to become obsessed with Christ? I've begun praying that over the last couple years. Like, I want to be obsessed with you. Like, I want to be consumed by you. When I wake up in the morning, first thing I want to think about is you. When I go to bed at night, last thing I think about is you. In the night, in the middle of the night, Psalm 16, it says, my heart instructs me in the night. I want to have dreams about you at night. And when I'm walking through my life, I want every conversation in some way to reflect you. I want you to be involved in it. I want to be obsessed with you in the most redemptive way that you can be obsessed with something. Let's redeem words, okay? Let's redeem words together. We're to be obsessed with Christ, consuming him each day and in every situation. And life for God, he has made us a kingdom and priests meant to share the gospel throughout the whole earth. Here's the full passage. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here is the posture that takes that which is good from each of the other four and combines them in the way that we are meant to live with God. You are meant to have life with God. That is how we are to posture ourselves towards God, is life with him. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. And this is what Jathani says about this posture. Life with God posture is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. God the Father is with God the Son, is with God the Spirit. And so we should not be surprised to discover that when God desired to restore his broken relationship with people, he sent his Son to dwell with us. Life is meant to be lived with God. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit, friends. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, God has chosen to dwell within you. And so everything you put your hands to as his child and every conversation you have and every situation you walk through, God is with you. So walk with him. Paul says, don't act like an orphan. Don't act like someone who's been left without a name. For God lives within you. God lives within within you. This is how we are to live. And so when Jesus says to us, when the Spirit says, come further up, further in, you have the example of how to do that within you. Stirring. Convicting. 
growing, stretching, leading, guiding. The Spirit is all of these things. He's the comforter, the protector, the light. And God walks with us. How do we live life with God? I think that one of the primary ways that we live life with God is by moving out of contracts and bargains and back into covenant relationship with him. Each of the four postures, the twisted side of it, it's man attempting to bargain. It's man attempting to have a contractual relationship with God. Now Josh, our friend, Josh Kumpf is a contractor. In a good sense, this is a bad contract. And if I hired Josh to do work on my house, we would come to an agreement, right? And there would be certain guarantees. I would be guaranteed that the work would be done according to what I desire, and he would be guaranteed to be paid. And if either one of us breaks that, then the contract is broken and the relationship is done. I'm not going to hire Josh anymore. Or if I don't pay him and he does the work, he's certainly not going to work for me anymore. Right? The contract is held up by both ends of the relationship. Now, when God has fulfilled his word in your life and come through with his promises of reconciliation and healing, have you been 100% faithful to hold up your end of the bargain? Raise your hand if you have. Does God still love you? And does God still walk with you despite that? Your relationship with God is not a contract. It's a covenant. So don't act like it's a contract. Because it's not. So when you sin and fall on your face, certainly be sorrowful and broken over your sin. But don't act like God doesn't love you anymore. Don't do that. That is deeply grieving to God's spirit. That is deeply grieving to God because it's not a contract. It's a covenant. And his word promised it all through the Old Testament. I'm going to have a new covenant with you. I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. I'm going to establish a new covenant with you. What does Jesus come and do? He establishes a new covenant with us. Here's how the sons of Korah, which is a cool title, say it in Psalm 46. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Another translation puts it, cease striving and know that I am God. The Hebrew, there's two words. Rapha. Did I say that right, Mike? Rapha, which is stop. Stop. And yada, which is no, but it's not an intellectual assent to knowledge. It's a knowing that comes through touch. Stop running around trying to bargain your way into relationship with God. Stop. Cease striving. Stop trying to make your relationship with God a contract. Stop. Touch him. Yada, no. That he is God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. How do we live? How do we stop being contractual with God? How do we stop posturing ourselves for him or from him or over him or under him? How do we live life with him? By stop striving. Cease striving. And know that he is God. You know there's one place in the Bible where we're commanded to strive? You know what it is? It's in Hebrews. Therefore, strive to enter his rest. Well, there's a paradox. There's a mystery. There's nowhere else in scripture where it tells us to strive. That's it. It tells us to stop striving to earn God's love, cease striving to earn his love in contract, know that he is God, experience his love, he is with us, but it says strive to enter his rest. So if you're going to work hard at something, friends, work hard at entering in to his rest. Run after it. Further up, further in. Chase it down. It's so worth it. Here's the other way we live with God. We live life with God with other people. You can't live life with God alone. Then God said, let us make man in our image. God doesn't say, I'm going to make man in my image. God says, let us make man in our image. And so the relational God in perfect relationship with himself creates us to be in perfect relationship with him and one another. Let us make man in our image. The fall has alienated us from four things. It's related, alienated us from God, which has caused relational distance. It's related, uh, alienated us from ourselves, which results in nakedness and shame towards ourself. It alienates us from others with fear, self-protection, and isolation. And it alienates us from nature. Because of the fall, because of sin, we have a broken relationship with God, ourselves, others, and nature. Jesus came to redeem all four of those things. He came to redeem your relationship with God. He came to redeem your relationship with yourself. He came to redeem your relationship with others. And he came to redeem your relationship with nature. So that we would stop being authoritarian and start having authority. That we would stop being dominating and start having dominion. Beloved, we love because he first loved us. This is the greatest commandment, that the, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You cannot love your neighbor if you have not loved yourself. You cannot love yourself until you have loved God, but you cannot love God until you have first received God's love. We love because he first loved us. God loves you so you can love yourself And you can love your brothers and sisters. This is not psychobabble. This is God's truth from the beginning of time. You cannot love others until you learn to love yourself. You cannot do it. Not true love. Not sacrificial abiding Jesus love. You cannot love others until you become a funnel for God's love yourself. Which means you can't treat others covenantally until you treat yourself covenantally. You ever made a covenant with yourself? And you cannot treat yourself covenantly until you've received God's covenantal love. God has covenanted with you. It cannot be broken through Christ, through the cross. 
Because of that, he loves you and you are valuable and worthy to him. So when you view yourself, stop viewing yourself as deficient. You're not deficient. You are not deficient. You are exactly who God made you to be. You still struggle and you still wrestle and God is still disciplining you and he wants to teach you stuff. But your value is not in what you do. Your value is in who he is. Remember? That's where your value is. That's why life for God is deficient. Live life with God. Receive his covenantal love for yourself and you'll be able to love other people. Quick story. I told this a couple weeks ago to another group. This is an example of this. My dad has done a great job of showing me covenantal love my whole life. I've never questioned my dad's love. I've been angry at him, really angry. I'm sure he's been angry at me, but I've never questioned his love for me. My, when I was older and I moved out of the house, my dad started doing this program called CASA. Anybody ever heard of that program? It's with a, a local judge assigns men and women of maturity in the community a foster child who has no one to care for them. And so the, this local judge who was friends with my dad asked my dad to be this person, this young man's CASA. Now this young man grew up in the foster care system, was a deeply troubled young man with mental illness and all, all sorts of issues and problems. My dad spent, has spent the last 10 years giving financially, giving emotionally, giving love to this young man. Like he's gone above and beyond to show this young man that God loves him. Now, if my dad hadn't loved me first that way, how would I view that relationship? I would look at that relationship between my dad and this young man and say, What? What about me? Is this some kind of like redo for you? Like, you know, making up for lost time with me? I would be deeply jealous in the bad way of his relationship with this young man. Let me tell you, I have never once, not for a moment, felt jealousy for this young man. I felt nothing but, that's awesome. Give him more. Give him more. Why? Because I'm so confident that my dad loves me. There's no competition. I'm his son. There's, there's, my dad could give him my inheritance and I wouldn't question my dad's love for me. The older son and the prodigal son, he looks at that love for the other son and he can't receive the father's love and so he can't love his brother. Because he has not received the father's abiding love for him, he has an inability to love himself. He doesn't see himself correctly. He sees himself as a slave and he can't love his younger brother. If that older son could just receive the abiding love, the covenantal love of the father, that's not based on doing, but it's based on love that he's chosen as a father, then the older son could look at the younger son and not feel jealousy, but actually say, that's awesome. Bring him home because he needs it. So do I. The reason why I tell that story is just to emphasize how true this is that we must learn to receive God's love for us and for ourselves if we're going to truly love our brothers and sisters. Otherwise, it will always have a hint of jealousy, it will always have a hint, a shadow of competition. There will always be something underneath it that's I wish that was me instead of them, whatever it is. But when you can receive without question God's love, 
then you can watch God lavish his love on others and feel nothing but joy. And that is a wonderful thing. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we can do that because God's love is perfect. We can do that because his love is sure. First John 3, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Don't do that. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. How do you know you've passed out of death and into life? Love your brothers. Love them. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. This is how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We don't have time for this. I wish we did. I've got so many thoughts on this. I'll trust God that we covered what we needed to cover this morning. What I will say is this, that God has called you to live with him. And how we do that is through the greatest commandment, receiving his love, believing his love for ourselves, loving ourselves, and loving others fully. How do you live life with God? You receive it and you live it with others. He's not called us to be desert monks up on a stone in the middle of nowhere, but he has called us to times of solitude. To live life with God, you have to get alone with him sometimes. And what I was going to show you was Luke 6, where Jesus starts on a mountain by himself, then he calls his disciples, and then he ministers to the crowd. In, in that order, alone with God, spiritual community, missional community. Walk out your relationship with God in the same way. Get alone with him, get with your spiritual community, your spiritual family, and then walk it out in the world. Luke 6, look it up this week. Spend some time there. That's your assignment. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close with one of my favorite hymns, which is Crown Him with Many Crowns. I love singing this hymn. I hope you do too. So let's stand and just crown God and our hearts and souls and spirits with many crowns together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for living life with us. We thank you for inviting us to live life with other people. I think of Jesus' words when he says, whenever you've done unto one of these, you've done unto me. So if you've given one of these thirsty ones a cup of cold water, you gave me a cup of cold water. We are to live life with God with others. We are to chase after you, God, further up and further in. But it's not a teasing kind of chase where we can't catch you. It's the kind of chase that's like the song of Solomon that is just filled with love and, and, and wonder and beauty. And so as we chase after you as a spiritual body, we want to live life with you, God. We want that to be our posture. And we want to live life with you with other people as well. Lead us yourself, God, as we sing praises to you. Pray this in your name.